You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. The title of this presentation is Sin as Metaphor or Explanation of Anti-Freedom Attitudes. George, the cards, please. <laughs> you can get help. Now, speaking of Zoroastrians, I might as well play off of that. How many of us were raised by oppressive Zoroastrian parents? May I see a show of hands? Ah. <laughs> a follower of the theologian philosopher Zoro Zoroaster. Well, what is I can name the millennium probably, but not the century, a Persian uh, religion. And... Uh, Oh, heresy, of course. But what did he teach? Excuse me, um, I will repeat the question. What did he teach? And my quip was heresy, of course. But uh, we'll leave that as just a quip. But I like the word that Michael used this morning, Michael Emery. In fact, I liked uh, so much about the, what I was hearing in the speech, I had to get out the uh, laptop and start uh, keying in his remarks uh, to steal them from him. But anyway, one of the things that he said was that... Uh, Use the word crushed. And uh, I doubt if anybody here was crushed by Zoroastrian parents. Um, but I think it's a powerful word. Now, how many of us think that if a Zoroastrian were to try to explain the struggle of, for human liberty, human freedom, from within a Zoroastrian perspective, from their theology, how many of us think that that might be interesting uh, and potentially even useful to hear it from a, uh, a, a philosophy that I hadn't thought of. You're nodding your head. I see one. Do I hear it? Do I see two? Do I see... Okay. Okay. I want to use a Judaic Christian um, view of sin. And I suspect that there were some people in this audience who were raised by or crushed by um, oppressive uh, Judeo-Christians. <laughs> And I hope that you will um, put that aside and still see if there might have been something, aside from the oppression and the crushing, that, uh, that might have been useful. Now, here's a question I really would like to see a show of hands. And it's a, an odd question to start a speech with, but uh, how many of us think that rape is wrong? May I see a show of hands and hold them up. Hold them up. Okay. Just about everybody. Now we've got the crowd. You're not going to manipulate me into raising their hands. And we also may have with us um, some who say there is no such thing as right or wrong, so I can't raise my hand on that issue. But for the vast majority of this audience, we know that there is something wrong. We would use the word wrong. How many of us have ever seen seagulls battling over the uh, recycling question? Okay? All right? You've, you've cleaned a fish. You've seen a seagull. How many of us think it's wrong for one seagull to steal some fish guts from another seagull? May I see a show of hands? All right. So we don't apply one. <laughs> wrong. And it's wrong for seagulls, that she says, to steal 
uh, fish guts from each other, private property being what it is. Okay. But most of us recognize some distinction. I was uh, intrigued by seeing uh, Jim Cox's book and his um, uh, recognition that he gives to the Spanish scholastics uh, in his book in terms of free market economics. But most of us recognize that there is some distinction between human beings and the, the other, our, our fellow members of the animal kingdom and that we apply different standards of right and wrong to human beings than we do to uh, animals. Uh, we don't really hold them to a standard of private property or other kinds of things. Uh, my wife has put a lot of energy into trying to teach the dogs, you know, whose food is whose and that sort of a thing. But it, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, it's just ginger, blah, 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 ginger. <laughs> but I think my saying, Joan, comes out, Joan, blah, 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 Joan. <laughs> so I'm giving up on that. But I believe some anti-freedom... Some of the source of anti-freedom attitudes is deeper than ignorance and deeper than emotion. Animals, how many of us have seen a happy or a sad dog or a cat? May I see a show of hands? Okay. So we recognize that emotions exist in animals. They share with us that. But I believe there's something here in this anti-freedom business that's deeper than ignorance you know, I think Idi Amin could have passed the true-false test on some of that stuff. I know when I do evil things, it has rarely been from a lack of knowledge. You know, it is not a cognitive disorder. It's a disorder of the will. So, I was listening to, and, and I'm going to disagree at one level with Michael, uh, as much as I... Th believe that every, I could underscore uh, so much of what he said this morning and, uh, and learn from it. But it was a knowledge-oriented presentation. One of the things I liked a great deal about what Michael said was his salute to Michael Rothschild in his book, Bionomics. And I think Rothschild has, and I'll say this uh, publicly, uh, well, right now, as much as I admire what we have done in the advocates in the last 10 years, it is conceivable that Michael Rothschild's single thought to compare to use the rainforest as a metaphor for the economy may do more to advance the cause of freedom than all the Ransberger pivots that we could stack from here to Washington, D.C. And I'm not trying that in any sense of a put-down of the material that I've worked long and hard to produce to you, and you've felt, you know, many of you... Uh, uh, productive. But tomorrow you're going to hear from Michael Rothschild, and hopefully you buy the book um, or acquire it. He might give it to you. I don't know. But the, uh, uh, I believe he has done something amazing, really profound in that metaphor. And not that this is necessarily as significant. I'm not trying to be here in a significant race. But what I'm talking about is similar in the sense that it goes to a deeper or a different level than more good um, technique that we all need self-included. Now, it's easiest to understand sin when it is exposed or described in other people. The human condition is such that it's much easier to recognize. Covetousness, for example, is one that's really easy to spot in other people and much harder to spot in oneself. So let's start with, with a quick spin around the political spectrum and visit some of our uh, uh, distant cousins in the world of politics the liberals, the conservatives, and the authoritarians, and let's examine their sin 
in ter- their problems, in terms of their error, their missing of the mark. Let's uh, examine that in terms of uh, sin. So we're going to go to the world's or the, the Nolan chart, uh, the diamond chart, and take a spin. Liberals. What is it about liberals? What sin drives their philosophy? Is there a dominant sin? And I believe there. No wonder this thing is not making sense at this point to me. Okay, and I keep looking at my notes. I went from page one to page three. So when all else fails, follow speech in sequence. Yeah, here's the body of this speech. I was heading towards the close. I got to tell the. I, I won't. All right. Two great speeches I listened to in preparation for coming here. I listened to some speeches from the mid-'80s, one by Bob Anderson called Fear of Freedom, and you can get that from the advocates, and it's worth it. And the other one is When Reason Failed. And we've distributed that one also, but I found the original, and with remastering being what it is, we can make a cleaner master, because the one we, cleaner copy, because the one we have now, you almost have to use headphones to listen to it. Why Reason Fails by John Williams from Melbourne, Australia. And John points out that that in his experience in working with liberals on the campus, he's gone to the point where reason fails. They, these people have engaged him in conversation, and they will concede, and they play the yes but game for a while, yes but, yes but, yes but, and finally they run out of yes buts, and still they don't like the market. And Bob Lefebvre gets into fear and believes that fear is a motive in many people that is really driving their anti-market behavior. So I commend you to look at, to, to go back and rediscover these two old advocates' tapes and, um, and listen to them again if you don't have them. Now, I use a three-log fire analogy with the seven deadly sins and have now for several years. It's the first time I've spoken publicly on this part of it. But I believe that when a person is fouling up either seriously or chronically, one way to analyze this could be to look at the seven deadly sins and to figure out which three or more are working together to cause this stupid mistake that this person is doing or yourself is doing. And it's a little different than Freudian and... uh, in analysis of why people make mistakes or some of the other, you know, Rungian or Yalfian or other ways. But I'm saying let's go back to this ancient uh, approach and try it. And, and the three-log fire is this. I believe if a person is in serious mistake or chronic mistake, any one of these seven deadly sins is not sufficient. It's like a log. It can't burn by itself. Two, they can kind of keep going. Three, you can have a nice fire. Four or more, you can have a conflagration. And I want to now look at the political world as being fueled by a conflagration of sin, the seven deadly sins. Some of them, not all of them. Yeah, I don't know anybody to combine all seven in one big happy family soup, but it's too much. You, what? You've tried? <laughs> Michael's going through quips a mile a minute. <laughs> Most of which he has the good sense not to say to us, so... Uh... And in terms of a definition, one of the classical definitions of sin is missing the mark. And at some other time, I'm quite willing to discuss, discuss who set the mark. That's not a part of today's discussion. 
and at some other time be glad to discuss how do we know who set the mark and where it is. That's not a part of today's discussion. So we're not going to go into the epistemology and the theology of this thing, and I will hopefully not uh, remind you of any uh, oppressive, crushing um, Judeo-Christian parents that you might have had. Now we'll take that cruise of the political spectrum. (laughs) And we'll start with liberals. I think liberals are perhaps, well, one way to find out what they're upset about is find out what they, uh, and what they're doing is to ask, well, what is it that they complain about in conservatives? Because should you listen to a person and find out what really makes them angry, now what they're typically describing is their own sins. Denial is not a river in Egypt. So if you listen to liberals very long, they're very unhappy with the tight-fisted, mean and greedy, stingy, unfeeling, uncaring, ungenerous conservatives who don't help the poor. So then you look at some data points. Where does direct mail work for helping the poor? Do you want to feed them in Biafra or Somalia? Do you send your letters to right-wing lists or left-wing lists? Right-wing lists. Is they always had a $25 check or a $500 check. What happens if you send direct mail fundraising to feed the poor to the left? Yeah. <laughs> Congress should do something. <laughs> they write a letter to their congressman right, wanting higher taxes to help the poor. Right? And they're mad at the conservatives for not being generous. When a Teddy Kennedy or a... Um, uh, Jesse Jackson is considering uh, running for president and releases his um, tax information uh, how mu- on an income of $200,000. Jesse seems to tie the full 1%. Actually, it's not quite a full 1%. Right? But on an income of $200,000 a year, he gives almost 2000 to all charitable... Uh, and he's a preacher. Reverend Jackson is, uh, is, is chomping right in there. I don't know that Teddy is quite that high. Pardon? Charity starts at home. That's right. Now, if you go look at conservatives, what do you find? Particularly, let's bring out our friends, the religious conservatives. In fact, let's bring out a stereotype of our religious conservative uh, acquaintances. And what are they complaining about? Lust, 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 lust. Right? Right? Well, who is it you catch out behind the corn crib with the playboy? Huh? Yeah, it's the preachers, right? <laughs> what they're really doing is trying to hope that we can outlaw pornography, for instance, and then in some great rush of, 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 of chastity, they will burn all of theirs and never be tempted again. Right? So they're always ragging on the left for its naughty ways. It took me longer to figure out the authoritarians because I made the mistake of focusing on the leaders. And their drive for power and ego, all that sort of thing. But I don't think you understand uh, the authoritarians at all, or very much. You're halfway by looking at the Stalins and Pol Pots and, and um, you know, folks like that. Um, Nixons, Clintons, Kennedys, whatever. I think you need to look at the followers. You need to look at not the nomenclatura, but all of the other folks. And what is it? My tentative answer is 
sloth. But not sloth in the sort of sloth light, you know, couch potatoism and watching football games all weekend and not, you know, getting a lawn mode. I don't think sloth is mere laziness. I think sloth is more accurately defined as doing the easy thing rather than the right thing. When I overwork, the easy thing for me, rather than the right thing might be to go home and be with my family more. So people don't accuse Marshall Fritz of slothfulness because he's so energetic and he's always working hard. Serious case of the sin of sloth. It just isn't laziness. It's workaholism. Mea culpa. I think authoritarians are guilty of the sin of profound sloth. They wish to abdicate responsibility for their lives. They wish to socialize, to spread it out. We all killed John Kennedy. To socialize, to, not the individual, but the group. You know, I shouldn't have to be responsible for my own income and my own family. This is the responsibility of society. That is a way to abandon your personal responsibility. That is the way to do the easy thing rather than the right thing. Of course, it becomes more troubling when one looks at one's own. And I always have to precede this with present company accepted, perhaps, when I bring up, well, what is the sin, the driving sin of the libertarian? And, of course, we dabbled in all seven. But which one? <laughs> all right, so I over-dabbled in gluttony and sloth and... Uh, I've been known to have a struggle with pridefulness. I believe that the, in most, in many, in some libertarians, there's a, there's a desire to run the world. There's a desire to control. There's a, you know, we are looking for the lapels of the world so we can just shake hard enough. And hell with a fulcrum, give me the lapels, right? And I believe that drive for power and to control things is coming out of pridefulness, hubris. Um, a friend of mine says arrogance is pridefulness on display. Uh, some of us have managed to camouflage our pridefulness. It has helped us to not get shot and, uh, or, or, or just you know, totally shunned. Um, but that doesn't necessarily cure it uh, or even alleviate it much. And I suspect, and if you've ever been, how many have ever been to a state executive committee meeting or a NATCOM meeting? And uh, maybe we may have, to, may have to excuse the last couple of years. But how many have ever been to a state XCOM or NATCOM meeting? May I see a show of hands, please? Okay. Now, put those down. Now, those same people, how many of you have ever seen uh, pridefulness and power, power hungriness on display? May I see a show of hands? <laughs> I rest my case. <laughs> Now, we're running out of the proverbial time, but we are on page three of a three-page speech. <laughs> Liberal welfareism is believed. Now let's go back to the three-log analogy, and let's look at liberal welfareism from the sin. And by the way, you know, I knew you all knew what the other two were, so that's why. Does everybody have the yellow card? Did they get passed out? Okay. 
Well, I had more up here, right? But anyway, barely enough is also quite enough. Thank you. I think five of the seven deadly sins are the most seriously involved in politics. And so I left off the other two that I think are less often involved. But uh, liberal welfareism, the logs, I believe, are envy, which is distinct from covetousness. A simple decision, a definition of envy is the rich shouldn't have it. It would be an envy. I don't even want it. I just want to destroy it for the rich. But I, I like C.S. Lewis's definition of envy. And envy is perhaps the least uh, charming of all of the seven deadly sins. Pride, we can say he has a strong ego. Right? Covetous is, he's very ambitious. And we've got ways of, of sort of nuancing uh, most of the sins. Gluttony, oh, is he a gourmand? Is he a trencherman? Oh, he'll eat you under the table, right? My kid can eat more than your kid can. The human garbage disposal, etc., 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 right? So we've got all kinds of charming little aspects to gluttony. Yeah, Uncle Bill does enjoy his, uh, his beer now and again, right? The drunken sot. <laughs> but envy doesn't seem to have a charming side. It's the, it's the uh, sin without a charm. But I like C.S. Lewis's definition. When I heard this, it became apparent to me how infected I am with envy, even though I might manage to hide it much of the time and have to take steps to figure out how to deal with it. Envy, according to Lewis, is the pain or the sadness you feel when a peer or competitor is praised. You want to hook Michael's envy? or Marshall's envy, rush up to Michael after this speech and tell him how wonderful Marshall is as a speaker. If you want to hook or provoke, you know, if you want to go topless in front of Marshall on the envy question, just rush up to me and say, Michael Emmerling is the greatest speaker in the libertarian movement. And uh, Joe, the question was, is truth a defense? But I believe liberal welfareism is rooted in, driven by, fueled by envy, anger, pridefulness, and covetousness. And those four burning together could be an explanation as to why some of your liberal friends cannot seem to get the picture. Because I believe that after all the knowledge is over, and if we can make them perfectly knowledgeable, Michael used the metaphor, gee, if everybody could put it and play our game, our hand hands up, and face, play the, the, the cards face up, uh, the libertarians would win. Um, um, facts are a friend of freedom. I think there's one more fact that's not in that pile of facts. Another fact is, I believe, that there's something about the human condition. Whichever metaphor you want to use for how it got there, that's not a part of today's conversation. But I think there's something about the human condition that we're different from seagulls. There is a right and wrong. 
And even when we know the difference, we still do wrong. And as long as we continue to deal with libertarianism or the freedom philosophy or the free market merely as knowledge, merely as metaphor, and we deny that there is something in the human condition, you know, call it sin or call it something else, I think we are the Sisyphuses, Sisyphi of the freedom movement, perpetually pushing that rock up the hill only to be tantalized by its falling down on us and not being able to get a drink of water. So I ask you, think about it. And we will turn this... Wait a minute, we don't have a pancake turner. We can't turn the meeting over. What can we do? And I can hand this roster of the microphone. And now, back to you. Thank you very much for your kind attention. There has to be some way to get out of the state. Time is over. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm dying up here. You, you introduced me. You've got to come up here, lady. You brought me up here. You come up and get me off of here. If you're going to replace me, you're going to be better than that, all right? We're going to see if she can stand public criticism. You did, too. Congratulations. She passed another test. Thank you, Marshall. Thank you, Marshall. Thank you, Marshall. We are now, you are now dismissed to go to our next session, which is going to be next door. We'll see you over there.